Greetings and welcome to the Remote Real Estate Investor. Within this episode, we're going to be talking about getting started. What does it mean to be a remote real estate investor? What's important for success and all that good stuff. We're also going to have a couple of segments within this episode. We're going to have a segment called Tool Time, where we talk about some really key tools to doing remote real estate investing, as well as a segment called Risk Rant, where we're going to go through key risks of remote investing. And lastly, we're going to end with making moves where I am going to be nominate myself as tribute and give my update on my portfolio. Each of these different episodes, we're going to have one of the hosts give an overview on what they're actively working on with their portfolio. All right, let's do it. Welcome to episode number two. I'm joined today by Emil Shore and Michael Albom. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Hey, everybody. You know, there's an art and a science to doing it successfully. And as a real estate investor who's living in the Bay Area, it, it kind of, a, that is my option if I want to real estate invest, unless I am just looking for some appreciation and, and not just in my own market. Yeah, for me, you know, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, I live in Los Angeles. So like you up in the Bay Area. Uh, real estate prices are really expensive. So out of necessity to get the returns I wanted, I had to go long distance. One of the, the main things I look for is a growing economy, right? You don't want to invest in a, in a market that is shrinking. Uh, is there abundant supply? And am I going to get the returns I'm looking for? So, you know, you can go on Roofstock, you can go scour the MLS, you can see, okay, what are properties selling for and renting for in this area? And am I, am I going to get the returns I'm looking for? So I described real estate investing as an art and a science. Yeah. What do you put in those buckets? Man, I think some of it just comes with time. Mm, like intuition? Yeah. Over time, you just you figure out what to look for. The first deal, when I analyze my first deal versus my most recent deal, completely different state of mind and what I looked for, right? In the beginning, it was a lot of, man, just, just maximize cash flow with no regard to is this a good street? Like, yeah. what are the repercussions? And now, you know, you experience some of those those things and you're like, okay, how do I find the balance or how do I minimize my risk? That sounds like art that turns into science. Yeah. So yeah, so I like it. it. Yeah. Michael, how about you? Yeah, totally. So for me, it's all about having a PIC, a partner in crime or a point of contact, having someone that I can talk to in, in that local market. And really the art and the science for me, I almost liken it to when I first started investing, I felt like a toddler first learning how to speak. I could speak three, four, five words, not even that great. And as my investing career kind of progressed, I'm able to speak in full sentences and it's coherent and people understand me. So you get a wider vocabulary. And so kind of a going along with the education piece and getting access to more vocabulary is relationship management. And so that's where I really see a lot of the art and also the science coming into effect is managing these distance relationships is so, so hypercritical. I can't overemphasize that enough. And so getting really good at knowing how much and how far you can push people and how to leverage folks and how to, how to best utilize your time so that you can be a successful uh, distance investor. Uh, speaking of, of languages, Michael's recording this from Spain right now. He's kind of the, the, the epitome of the remote real estate investor. He's from California, but he's, <laughs> he's living in Spain right now. It's yeah. a really awesome, awesome deal. Yeah. I mean, I always tell people when I'm, uh, most of my investments are out in the Midwest anyhow. So when I'm in California, I'm three hours away, excuse me, three hours time zone difference. Now I'm just eight hours difference. So 
we've got a phone phone connection and an internet connection. So not a whole lot has changed other than now I wake up. People think I wake up a lot earlier than them because I'm eight hours ahead. I got a fun question. Have you guys visited your properties that you invest in? I have never visited any property that I own. I want to. I just haven't done it yet. Yeah. You know, I I used to just because when I was traveling a lot for work as an engineer, I would find myself in all these different markets and I would kind of pick up pieces of real estate wherever I found myself. So by nature, I was visiting those places physically. But in the last couple of years, I'd say 95% of the properties I purchased have been sight unseen. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's important to have a, you know, a, a, an inspector certified, all that, all that good stuff. Yeah. And one thing I've, I've tried to do now yearly, get a full like property mm. inspection report from my property manager. It's like going to the dentist. Yeah, exactly. They're going, they're taking yeah, pictures. Yeah, check up. They're tell, taking pictures, telling me what they think we should repair now or what we can defer. So that's been something I've learned over time is super valuable. So I don't have to is go. Is there an the added property. cost for that, Emil? Most of the time they yeah, usually most, do, but yeah. it's worth it. Yeah, yeah totally worth it. Is it. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's it's typically negligible in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I think it was, I paid 75 or 100 bucks for my last one on my Jacksonville property and it was totally worth it. Like we found something that we should have totally fixed or else it would have become a problem. So it was 100% awesome. worth it. Awesome. And it's a deduction. What about you, Tom? What's important for you? I'd say it's, it's shifted over time. And I really like that analogy that Michael used as kind of, you know, learning a language and just getting more proficient. I think the language that has really opened up real estate investing to me is is leverage, you know, and it's something that I didn't think about too much when I was initially doing my buying, but I've just seen just such upside on the appreciation and being able to capture that appreciation and redeploy it, you know, through uh, a cash out refinance or using a HELOC. So understanding what's available, the different tools of the trade, be it on the financing side or even on like sources of capital. So I'm going to talk a little bit about later about making moves, but getting into a uh, using a self-directed IRA. So I think what's important for me is knowing what are the different avenues. I mean, that's one of the things that's so fun about real estate investing versus other types of investing is that you have this huge repertoire of tools that you can deploy, right? As it relates to finance, as it relates to buying. And, you know, I've been I've been doing this for several years and I feel like I'm still just scratching the surface with with regards of what's available out there. Yeah. What do you uh question for you, what do you think has been easier than you expected about remote real estate investing and what has been harder? That's a good question. Wow. I'd say the ownership piece, everyone knows there's there's great tax benefits, but it's like, okay, April comes, what am I doing? I think that's actually been a lot easier. And the way that it's the cheat code is just get a good CPA who has experience in real estate. So I'd say the kind of the back office management piece of, you know, getting a good CPA. And if you're able to land a great property manager, that's been easier. I'd say the harder piece, gosh, really good question, Emil. You know, I think doing a good job and identifying properties, it, it takes time, right? And with something we talk about in, in Roofstuck Academy a bunch is, you know, getting your at-bats in. And there's oftentimes not a shortcut to that. So I wouldn't say that it's necessarily harder, but it's it takes work, you know, in 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 finding deals and evaluating deals. And it's, there's, there's a reason, uh, and I think it's a good thing. I think it's a barrier to entry, right? Like I'm willing to put the time in to find properties, but you know, there are definitely lots of good deals out there. It just, sometimes it takes a little bit of mining to get to them. Yeah. And you, me and Michael, we talk about this on webinars all the time. Your first deal is never going to be a make or break. Yeah. I think in the moment you think it's going to be like, I got to get the perfect property, but it's actually just that first at bat, you know, you want it to be a good one, but 
the hope is you get better with more investments, right? Like your first one, if you peak at your first one, uh, that's not good. No. Yeah. I think so many people get caught up in trying to go hunting for their first time and they're like, oh, I got to land a unicorn, right? And their expectations might not be that realistic. So like you said, just, you know, get, getting the first deal done, there's so much intrinsic value. And you know, I would even put a dollar value to it. And that's not to say go buy a bad deal or just go buy any deal, but go get a deal, go get a good deal and get the experience under your belt such so that when that unicorn shows up, you'll be able to identify it. Yes. Bias for action. 100%. Yes. 100%. Emil, what, what do you think has been easier for you? I, I, I probably agree with Tom. Like the, the day-to-day management, once you've interacted with a property manager a couple times, you start to get in the flow of how they work, how you can negotiate with them, how you can push them. I thought that was going to be a lot harder and require a lot more time ongoing. But once you get in the flow of it, it's actually pretty easy. And what's been harder, you think? I would say it's super easy to be overwhelmed with all these different real estate investing strategies. Right? There's a ton of ways to invest in real estate, ton of ways to... A lot of successful ways. Yeah, a lot of successful ways. And so I thought I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And now it, it's a matter of keeping focus saying, this is, these are the kinds of properties I want to go after. This is like my niche uh, and sticking to that versus not getting overwhelmed all the time with, oh, but I could do this strategy and then this strategy. But what if I do this instead of that? Yeah, shiny object syndrome. Dog chasing a car. Yeah. I came into it very confident. I knew what I wanted. And now it's like, man... There's so, you know, there's so many avenues for real estate investing. It's like, which one's the best? All right. So for this segment, uh, Tool Time, we're going to bring up a couple of tools and talk about how they're helpful, what their upside is, what their downside is. And I'm going to start this off with Craigslist. Now, Craigslist is, I think, a fantastic source for getting market rent comps. And this is really important in that if you're buying a property and it's occupied, or even if it's not occupied, I want to know what that rent is, if it was you know vacant, what the market speaks to. And Craigslist is something that when I was working at a job where we did property management, we used Craigslist all the time for listing the properties, and we used it for establishing comps. Within the show notes of this, I'm going to set up a video that's going to go over what I'm about to explain right now on how to use Craigslist for identifying comps so of rent. Uh, so within each Craigslist of every city, you can search for uh, what's available for rent. You can even filter to what a single family home is. And what the real magic is, is you can overlay this in a map. So if I'm looking to buy in a specific market and I've identified some properties that I like and I know where they sit in the map and I'll, you know, I'll usually use like major highways as kind of like boundaries to, to, to view. I'll go into Craigslist and I'll actually pull up that same neighborhood and I'll see some real comps on what properties are renting for. And that's some great opportunity to, to get a good deal. A property might be under rented, right? Or maybe it's over rented. And I, I know that when that tenant moves out at the time in which they do, like I'm either, there's either upside or downside. So that's something I recommend to everyone buying a property is, hey, do a little bit of homework on what the market rent is. And Craigslist is killer for that. Such a good point you make, Tom, because I think so many people do this when it comes to renting a home for themselves, but they never think to do it as the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Where they're actually owning the home and trying to figure out what the rent comp is. Have either of you guys used Rentometer to pull up comps? I have used Rentometer and I think it's it's cool. So it's similar to Zillow, which is a tool we're going to talk about in a minute. 
in that it, it does a an AVM, which is an automated value. Or I, I think I'm mixing my acronyms up. <laughs> automated valuation model, where it's using an algorithm of data it's collected of comps to to come up with a value. And there's a lot of value in using that technology, but there can also be some shortfalls in that. There could be one side of the highway. It has like a, like a brand new HOA and a lot of fancy things on the other side. And oftentimes these models like, like Zillow or, or Rentometer, you know, they may have a hard time discerning that. So I have used it and I think it's helpful, but I mean, I use it more directionally. Michael? I think it's a really great way to, to be able to get a flavor for an area more so than like an exact rent comp, like you were saying, Tom. Because, yeah, just like these models aren't able to pick up street by street changes or block by block changes. So I think you really need boots on the ground to identify that hyper local. But it's super good, again, just to kind of get a flavor or a rough idea. Yeah. So speaking of AVMs, our next tool we're going to talk about is Zillow. So, Michael, do you want to talk about your experience? Yeah, totally. So when I first started investing in real estate, I was using almost exclusively Zillow, turning on the rent and the sale filters. So Zillow's got a ton of really great filters you can turn on, mainly being rent, sale, and then past sales or previous sales. So you can get real time almost to the date MLS information, because that's where Zillow pulls most of the information from, and see what properties are actually being listed for, what properties are being advertised for rent for, and what properties have actually sold for. And so that's the red, purple, and uh, yellow filters, respectively. So you can set filters high and low. You can band your price range. You can set it to bedroom, bathroom count, year built, square footage. There's all these great sortable filters. And kind of like Craigslist, you've got a map view. So you can zoom in, zoom out, and kind of set your, your boundary parameters. And it's a super great way to see you know, in real time what things are being valued at, what things are selling for. It's also a Zestimate, right? Which is kind of that AVM model as well. And I don't know, Emil, do you have any thoughts on on Zillow in particular's model? Yeah, so I, I'm actually in the process of refinancing the first investment property I bought. And you know, I saw on Zillow that my value had gone up considerably. And I'm like, all right, I think it's a good time to refinance, pull the cash out and go use that to buy another property. And bank did the appraisal and it came in, pretty far under what I was expecting, what Zillow had put. I'm still going through with the refinance, still want to pull some cash out, and the rate is lower than when I bought it. But I think in the future, I probably wouldn't just rely on Zillow. I'd probably go look at a couple other comps as well before I pull the trigger on the refinance. Yeah. I mean, you can use Zillow, right? You know, the value that they have, but I love to use it actually for looking at comps. So just like Michael was saying, you don't have to just look at what the value they give. You can get into the details where you're in the map and you're filtering to what recently sold, what is a, you know, a like type asset with regards to square footage and bed count and actually see over the map exactly what that appraiser would be. A couple of thoughts with Zillow is they recently started an iBuying business where they are buying properties, right? So as soon as they did that, there was a little bit of shifting in their pricing model and, and their valuations <laughs> because, you know, if they're going to say, hey, I want to buy this price, they're going to be a little bit more conservative on the, the list price. The other thought with Zillow is I think in some markets, it's becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy in that the sellers and the buyers are looking at it. You know, Zillow is, is basically turned into the word Kleenex where it's like its own, you know, word. It's like, right. you know, like, Google or like exactly like, oh, I Zillowed it. So I think for a lot of markets, especially markets where it's a little bit more 
homogeneous like the types of properties is it's becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's such a good point. Such a good point. One thing I, I want to bring up too is that because I really specialize in multifamily, Zillow is not a great tool by any means for most multifamily properties. I found that duplex tries and quads, unless the listing agent has specifically gone in there and plugged in all the information, the Zestimate tends to be way off. And the actually the information that, that Zillow pulls can often also be way off when it comes to bed, bath, count, and square footage. So I think it's, you know, I, I don't even use it anymore for those types of properties, but for single families, it's still really great to, to filter through and get a good look at what local comps are doing. With the multifamilies you have, Michael, are, are you mainly doing it on like a cap rate basis or are there enough comps that you can like justify, you know, the value with the sales comp? And are there any tools, you know, relative to this, uh, this segment? For multifamily properties? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so actually I find that realtor.com is pretty decent as well because I, I, I often find a lot more agent input information. So you can get what the rents are. You can get what the expenses are that oftentimes aren't going to be in Zillow for whatever reason. I guess that's just how the, the listing is set up. So that's a, gr a really great place to go for small multifamily. For bigger multifamily, loopnet.com. Mm. It kind of, the, it's a butt of a lot of jokes, but I found some awesome deals there. So that's a really great place to look for multifamily. Nice. I don't want this to sound overly promotional, but Roofstock has actually been a great tool for me. I've actually bought all my properties through Roofstock so far. And one of the, one of the things I love is all the underwriting we offer. We actually have this tool called... Um, Cloudhouse, if you go to roofstock.com and scroll all the way to the footer, there's uh, like a rental property calculator link. If you click that, you can actually put in any single family home in anywhere in the US and we'll run like a quick underwriting model and give you the neighborhood score and we'll pull the value based on like a couple different comp tools and rent. And so it's like a really cool, fast way to, to analyze properties that you're looking at or you're interested in. My primary residence was fun to plug in there. But, you know, just a lot of the tools we make available, they're super, super valuable. All right, we're going to move on to another segment we call Risk Rants. So on this one, we're going to be talking about what are the related risks with remote real estate investing and what are some strategies to mitigate them? So bad partners. So usually what you'll find is this is in the form of a property manager, right? It's super important to have an awesome property manager because they're the one who is interfacing with your tenant. They are the one who you're relying on to make sure they fix things in the appropriate amount of time, making sure they take care of your property, right? Like they're running all the day-to-day -day operations. So they're one of the most important pieces if you're, you know, long-term buy and hold. Emil, I think you hit the nail on the head with property manager being your biggest ally and one of your biggest assets. I've always said that you live and you die by your property manager because for the exact reasons you mentioned, they're the ones interfacing with your tenants. You know, if, if you become property managerless all of a sudden, are you going to go out there and deal with the tenants? Are you going to go out there and, and fix toilets and schedule plumbers and all that kind of good stuff? So I think having a, a really locked in property manager that's kind of headed in the same direction that you are, understands your expectations you understand their expectations of you and they understand your expectations of them makes for a super healthy relationship. And so getting that locked in on the front end, even prior to purchasing a property is one of the best, biggest keys to success. Yeah, totally agree. What about, let's say you have a property manager, you know, you guys I'm sure have gone through this. You have a property manager who isn't doing a good job and you want to look for a new one, right? Like 
that's the big risk here is you have to find a new property manager. What is the best way to go about finding someone more reliable from what you guys have found? I think in general, you need to be standardized the way that you evaluate. Volume helps meeting with a couple of, or you don't have to meet with them in per- person, but phone interviewing multiple property managers is in having the same process for, for all of them. Yeah. Roofstock has some recommended property managers. A key thing I ask for in evaluating a property manager is give me some references. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, this can't be your sister or brother or whatever, you know. So getting references and, and, you know, it doesn't have to be a long conversation with a reference, but asking them, you know, are, are they doing a good job? Do you trust them? Were there any other property managers that you looked at? It, just being standard, like whoever you're talking to, like asking the same questions from PM to PM. Yeah. Michael, you and I have talked to, uh, to PMs on the phone together. What You had some great questions that I think you like to, to ask property managers. Can you run through a couple that are like your tried and true? One of the big ones is is how many units do you manage? How many properties do you manage? How long have you been in business? How do you handle evictions? What are your fees? Can you give me a, a breakdown of your fee structure? Do you have in-house or out-of-house maintenance and you know trades folks? Because if you can take advantage of, if they've got in-house folks, it's typically going to be cheaper. Um, a big one is asking if they put a markup on their services, right? If they're going to charge you a hundred bucks to have a plumber come out, are they making a spread on that? Or are they just charging you at cost. I mean, another kind of thing that I really like to do to test property managers is pick up the phone and call them posing as a tenant and see what that conversation is like. And if you're treated well and respectfully, you can imagine that any you know potential tenant of yours is also going to be treated well. If they're not interested in talking to you because you're a prospective tenant, you're not a client yet, that's probably not going to bode well you know, for that future relationship going forward. Nice. Undercover boss, Michael. That's that's (laughs) That's smart. Another thing that I like to do is just hop on Google and look at the reviews because you're going to get a mix of owner reviews as well as tenant reviews. And since your tenants are your clients, I think it's really important to make sure that their needs are getting met. And if a property manager isn't meeting their needs, well, they're not meeting the needs of your clients. And in my opinion, that's not a great business partner. I think that could be a tough one because... Oftentimes, the relationship between a tenant and a property manager can be a little rough in that, you know, that the the property manager is is asking and collecting for rent. Now, I think you definitely need to be professional and respect, but, you know, I don't put too much weight. You know, maybe I'll read the comments just to see if they're, you know, being reasonable. But oftentimes, it is a tough line to toe, toe, yeah, of, of being a property manager and getting like really good tenant reviews. No, absolutely. I think it's often a very contentious relationship because you have that landlord-tenant relationship that when people say that, it often doesn't bring warm fuzzies. But I do think too, because so many other tenants are, are reading these reviews when making decisions about who, you know, who they will and won't, won't rent from, I do think it, you know, for me personally, I think it carries a, a fair amount of weight because those are, again, prospective and future clients. It's a good way yeah. to think about yeah, it. Yeah, it's a good, good counterpoint. All right, cool. So, uh, you know, another thing that remote real estate investors uh, need to keep an eye out for and really need to keep their heads on a swivel for is if they're managing a remote rehab. So this is something I've done numerous times over a lot of years, and it's tough. I mean, it's definitely tougher because you can't drive down to the job site and see how things are going and see if people are showing up on time, how much progress is being made. So you kind of have to have your team in place checking up on things, making sure things are going smoothly and as planned. 
And if your team is caught up with other things because they're likely going to be selling other properties, if you got an agent on your team or managing other rentals, if it's a property manager, they're not able to keep a super close watch on things. So it's tough. So you've got to have a lot of checks and balances in place. And I've definitely been taken advantage of because I'm, you know, the California money bags investor. Obviously I'm not, but that's what people think when they hear I'm a California investor. So I've definitely been taken advantage of several times. So is that your Twitter name? <laughs> yeah, that's my, that's my Twitter handle. <laughs> so, you know, having, having a really strict and really thorough contractor screening process on the front end can save you a ton of heartache and dollars on the back end. And so I would almost argue that delaying a project to find the right contractor is well worth it. Because if you start a project with the wrong contractor, you are going to be so much longer delayed trying to have someone come in where they left off. They've got to bring their, move their materials out, move their tools out. It's just a headache. And so if that has to happen one, two, three times on a job, on a rehab, that's really, really bad. So again, it's just something, you know, before you start the rehab, make sure you've got everything in place. You've got your team in place. Your team's committed to being a participant, an active participant in the rehab process. They understand what's expected of them. They understand what's expected of you. And there's a very, there's very clearly defined roles throughout the, the rehab process. Who's paying what and when, and who's responsible for doing what and when, because uh, it'll make your life a whole lot easier. And so what's that saying? You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, set the systems up properly on the front end so that you're not struggling, you know, in the middle of a rehab. Yeah. Totally. I uh, I recently had a turn at one of my properties. All the properties I've bought have been mostly turnkey style properties where I don't have a lot of rehab to do up front. But you know, when a tenant leaves, you have some costs that you incur. You gotta make it rent ready again. And usually, I rely on my property manager. Like part of my screening is, do you have GC you can call or handyman who can repair some stuff? So I usually lean on the PM again. So this is why it's you know we harp on the the property manager being so important on your team. Yeah. I think the big thing for me for these projects is is getting multiple bids. You know, I lean exclusively on third-party property managers and part of the vetting is like, "Hey, do you have what kind of capacity do you have internally with doing work? Like, do you have your own carpet guys and plumbing guys and like how what does that look like with rates? Do you have a big vendor network?" So, yeah. um, multiple bids are just really the ticket and Yeah, it's a good lesson. I remember there was um there's a tree overhanging one of my properties. And Ugh, trees are sneaky expensive. <laughs> they are sneaky expensive, tree trimmings. And so I got a quote back and it was a little bit higher than I thought it should be. And so I just asked my property manager, I said, hey, can you go get another quote? And they're like, sure. And it came in $200 less, literally with one email saved 200 bucks. So multiple bids, so important. Real money. Yeah. yeah. And the tree was probably trimmed just as good as the $200 more expensive guy, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, you, you know, they may use sharper sharper blades or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> Okay, in this segment called Making Moves, one of the hosts is going to go through what they're actively working on within their portfolio, and I have nominated myself first. It's really awesome to be able to do this as a host because I get feedback from some super smart investors in Emil and Michael, and what I'm doing next within my portfolio is taking advantage of a self-directed IRA, and you know, one of the things that I, that I love about leading investor education at Roofstock, Roofstock Academy, is if I'm not familiar with a subject, I'm going to go through it. 
Like I want to know the ins and outs of it. So one of the content we're building a lot of content on is self-directed IRA. So I am going headfirst and doing it myself. So that is my next move that I am making within my portfolio. I've contacted a couple of companies that that do the self-directed IRA and just kind of whittling down the one that I'm going to move forward with. My plan is probably keeping the bread and butter within my portfolio, single family home, either in the Midwest or the Southeast, uh, where the majority of my portfolio is. There's some cities in the Midwest that I've been interested in investing for a while. Cincinnati is one of them. I don't have a property management company there. I've traveled through Ohio and it's, I don't know, seems like a great spot. The economics look good and pretty good cash flow on what you can get for the price. And just seems like a place that you can go pretty deep in. So to reiterate, my next making moves is going to be a self-directed IRA and kind of continuing in my my, uh, bread and butter of my portfolio. Awesome. Nice, Tom. You know, Michael, you were talking to me offline before to talk about a self-direct IRA. And I'd love, you know, might as well do it right now. What, what, what was your, uh, I'd love your input on self-directed IRAs. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's a super great strategy and I've heard a lot about it, but kind of like you, I've never done it myself. I was just kind of wondering, you know, where do you start? How do you start the process? Who do you reach out to? Walk us through kind of what you've been going through so far. Yes. Yeah, so within the, like the business development group uh, at Roofstock, there are a couple of partner companies. And one of them is a company that does 1031s, which we'll have a deep dive on later. And another is there's a couple of companies that do these self-directed IRA. And at a, at a super high level, what this is, is it's me able to use my retirement account and being able to buy a property with that. And, you know, there's some downside to it in that, that I understand I'm going to be learning a lot about it as I go through the process. So this is me kind of on the outside looking in, and I'm going to have a lot more when I come out on the other side. But, you know, with those funds, I can't co-mingle them at all with any of my other investment funds. So, you know, some downside of it is I have to have this firewall kind of from my, my existing portfolio funds, cash flow coming in, coming out to this now unique one that is specific to where my retirement account is. Because from my understanding, like if those funds that relate to this self-directed IRA, if they like touch other funds, I, I basically am going to be taxed on it a ton. That's, that's my understanding. So I don't know that I totally answered your question on where I'm getting started. I'm, I'm basically getting started by I, you know, <laughs> researching companies that we have you know, some connection with in the past at Roofstock and basically start getting into the, oh, why do you do that? Oh, why do you do that? Oh, why do you do that? Just asking a lot of questions. I think you know, the big milestones in this process within within my portfolio in doing this is one, getting really well educated on the do's and don'ts of a self-directed IRA, which is going to be really fun because we're going to create Roofstock Academy content on that and probably also have some great interviews and then go through the standard process of, of doing an acquisition and, and getting it set you know, in my portfolio. Awesome. And so how are you whittling down the companies that you're talking to and deciding which one to ultimately go with? You know, there's not a ton of companies that that do self-directed IRAs. Um, and I mean, I could just, you know, you could just do a Google search and you're going to get hit by a bunch of them. I think I definitely am going to talk to somebody who's gone through the process before, get their yeah. feedback on, you know, what what they've done. And, and that's going to be, so I'd say a couple of different, you know, channels. I think one getting, like I said, talking to someone who's done it before. Another would be talking to, you know, of the companies that I'm referenced, try to get at least three of them 
and kind of kind of beat them up on what their process is and their their value add to it. But I'm pretty excited about it just because I know I, I personally, I think there's probably a lot of other people out there that have funds in a retirement account where they have a good amount of money in stocks. And if they want to diversify a little bit, they can use those retirement funds in investing in real estate. Awesome. And does it have to be an all cash purchase or can you get a loan through an IRA? I'm almost positive you can get a loan through an IRA and even like a traditional loan. But again, this is all stuff that I'm going to be kind of going through the ringer and learning about. And I, I promise to report back on, on what I've learned within yes. the podcast and then go super deep dive into it within the, uh, the academy lectures with a case study and all of that. Awesome. Way to be the Tim Ferriss of real estate investing, Tom. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm excited. I've got a bunch of stuff, like a bingo list of, of different maneuvers I'm, I'm going to Tim Ferriss myself into. Awesome. Looking forward to hearing what you learn. All right. This is probably a good place for us to wrap this episode up. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you haven't already, go and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Android. Make sure you subscribe so you get all the future episodes right when we release them. And I, I wanted to ask you, our dear listener, for a quick favor before you leave. So because this is a brand new podcast, we're really trying to spread the word, really trying to get as many people listening in as possible. So if you leave us a review or tell your friends on social, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever, just mention us. Tell them you love the show. Tell them what you like about it. Leave us a review. If you take a screenshot and email it over to me, I'm going to hook you guys up with a free 15-minute coaching call with one of our Roofstock Academy coaches. So you'll be able to talk to them about whatever you want, whatever real estate investing questions you have. We'll get those answered. So all you have to do, again, leave us a review or give us a shout-out on social. Tell your friends to listen to the Remote Real Estate Investor by Roofstock Take a screenshot and email it to me. My email is eshore, E-S-H-O-U-R, at roofstock.com. And I'll make sure we get you hooked up with that free coaching call. All right, thanks for listening. We'll catch you in the next one. Happy investing. Happy investing. Happy investing.